Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 51, The Themes. Last time, we followed the early career of Constance II, the teenage emperor who essentially took over the government of Romania after his grandfather's death. After suffering defeats on every front, the now 26-year-old was very relieved when news came of the death of the Caliph Uthman in Medina. The Augustus didn't know how long the Muslim world would be turned inward, but the retreat of Muawiyah's unbeatable Syrian army allowed him at least a year or two to better organise the Roman military, for whatever was to come next. Obviously, the Byzantine army was in poor shape. It had lost every major battle for over 20 years now. The main armies in Anatolia had very low morale and little hope of turning the tide. While in Italy and Africa, the troops had seemed perfectly willing to go along with rebellions against the government in Constantinople. Constance was determined to do something about this, and launched himself into action. In 657, he sent his forces back into Armenia. The new prince installed there by Muawiyah was happy to cooperate with the Byzantines now that the Arabs were out of sight. The following year, Constance became the first emperor since Maurice to campaign in the Balkans. Marching out through Thrace, the emperor attacked the Slav tribes that now lived along the coast road to Thessalonica. Heraclius had received some dubious promises of obedience from these settlers, and now his grandson was determined to bring them to heel. The emperor wanted to do more than remind them of the power of the empire, though. He captured thousands of prisoners put them on transport ships and settled them on abandoned farmland in Anatolia. You may remember from the history of Rome that during the long battles on the Rhine and Danube frontiers, the imperial authorities would often recruit thousands of barbarians into the Roman army once they were defeated. That same policy would be reenacted by multiple emperors from now on. 
Anatolia had been subjected to raids and sackings for about 40 years now. First the Persians, now the Arabs. With the plague still popping up now and again as well, the area desperately needed an influx of new settlers. Particularly if the Byzantine army was going to find new men to fill the ranks. The Slavs were understandably angry at their treatment, and about ten years later, a division of 5,000 Slav soldiers will take the opportunity to defect to the Arab side and were resettled in Syria. It's an amazing migration story for men whose grandparents may have grown up well north of the Danube. By 659, Muawiyah was deep in arbitration with his rival for the caliphate, Ali. This Muslim civil war was the one which began the division of the Middle East into Sunni and Shiite believers. The governor of Syria sent word to Constance that he wanted peace, and he was willing to pay for it. The generous terms of the truce meant that the Arabs would pay the Romans about £5,000 of gold a year, and give them a slave and a horse for every day that the deal was honoured. No one was fooled into thinking that the Arab tribute in any way suggested Roman superiority, but clearly Muawiyah believed that Constance's armies could do significant damage if he didn't neutralise them. The emperor gladly agreed to the terms and pushed forward with his plans to reorganise the army. We now enter very murky territory as we talk about the establishment of the Byzantine themes. I imagine most of you have heard of the themes, but if not, then they were the new military districts which the empire was divided into. Anatolia, for example, was to be split into five themes. Each one would have its own army, who would live inside the theme, man and defend its forts and cities, and protect it from Arab raids. You may have also heard that once the armies were assigned to their district, that they were then given land which would support them. The sons of these soldiers would therefore inherit both the obligation to fight for the empire and the productive land to pay for their upkeep. The added bonus of this system is that these men would now be fighting to protect their own property, thus ensuring their loyalty to Romania. However, that last part may never have been true and certainly seems highly doubtful for the 7th century. I will doubtless talk about the development of the Roman army at the end of each century, when we can go into all of this in more detail. For now, though, it's important to stress how little we know about the development of the themes. There's a general consensus that during the next three years, 659 to 662, while the Muslim civil war continued, Constance began the process of finding permanent bases for the field armies in Anatolia. We don't know if this was the emperor's idea, or the work of an advisor, or if it came from the armies themselves. But it seems likely that the emperor approved of the process, which began to entrench his eastern armies into secure locations from which they could better defend the empire from Arab raids. At the website and on Facebook, you can see a map of the earliest formation of the themes, it's a not-so-great scan I did from Warren Treadgold's definitely great book. I couldn't find another version online. The easiest way to picture the themes is to imagine that we've cut Anatolia into four corners. And the easiest theme to remember is the Armeniacon theme, 
or the or in the anglicized version the armeniac theme this was obviously made up of the army of armenia and guarded the top right corner which covered both the armenian mountains and the lands to the west as they sink down into cappadocia to the south occupying the bottom right hand corner was the anatolikon theme this area was facing the Taurus Mountains, where the main thrust of Arab assaults would come from, but also stretched west into the Isaurian Mountains. I don't think on either podcast the origins of the word Anatolia have come up, but it comes from the Greek word for east, Anatoli, which makes sense given the peninsula's location compared to mainland Greece. The Anatolikon theme was manned by the former Army of the East. To the west, guarding the bottom left corner, would be the Thracision theme, so named because this was to be the new home of the former army of Thrace. They would stand guard over the theoretically wealthy cities of the coast like Ephesus and Sardis. Needless to say, they were not returning to Thrace. The Balkans would continue to be ignored while the Arab threat was so dire. In the top left corner would be the Obsequion theme, who would guard Chalcedon, Nicomedia, and of course, Constantinople. These were the former precental armies, the armies in the emperor's presence. Recently, they had been referred to as the Obsequium, meaning retinue, hence the Obsequion theme. I know it will take a little time to get used to the names, but as you can see, this was a fairly straightforward transition from the existing imperial armies into new settled areas of operation. The fifth and final theme created was the Caravisiani, or as I will probably end up calling it, the Carabisian theme. It was formed of soldiers, sailors and marines who would guard the Aegean islands along with Rhodes, Crete and Cyprus. This is where the remnants of the army of Illyricum may have ended up, and Caravisiani comes from the Greek word caravis, meaning ship. As I said, we're fairly confident that the themes began to take shape while Muawiyah's army was absent. There is evidence for the building of forts and the rebuilding of city walls from around this time. But as I also mentioned, there is plenty of disagreement about how revolutionary this process was. I follow the line laid out by historian Mark Witto, which is that the themes were at this stage simply the new geographical homes of the army. The soldiers were not given grants of land, but continued to be paid by the imperial treasury. If you remember, Heraclius had just about halved soldiers' pay during the wars with Persia, and it seems likely that this cut allowed the state to keep funding its armies. It's also probable that many federate soldiers had drifted away or been cut from the payrolls, and that the size of the armies began to shrink as other units were not replaced. While the military fanned out over Anatolia, Constance had plenty on his mind. The 31-year-old emperor was now a fully-grown man, with a fully-grown beard. He was popularly known as Constantinos Bogonatos, Constantine the Bearded, because of his luscious facial hair. 
You can see the amazing beard as depicted on his coins at thehistoryofbyzantium.com or on Facebook. The emperor had remained loyal to the bride presented to him when he was 11, Fausta, the daughter of Valentine, and they had had three sons, Constantine, Heraclius, and Tiberius. There is no consensus on how old the boys were. I've seen guesses that young Constantine IV was anywhere between 9 and 17 by 661. A compromise of 13 is suggested by Warren Treadgold, which I will go with. Having been given imperial power at age 11, Constance clearly saw no reason not to similarly empower his sons. So by 661, Constantine had been crowned as co-emperor and possibly already married to his bride Anastasia. His two younger brothers would follow him into the purple. Another reason for the hurry with this was that Constance was about to leave the capital. He was making plans to take the Obsikion army to Italy, at the very least to bring Africa and Italy fully back into the imperial fold after both exarchates had gone into rebellion earlier in his reign. Before he set sail, though, the emperor did two more things worth mentioning. Last episode, I talked about how Constance had the Pope dragged before him and exiled for treason. Certainly, this was a bold and autocratic move, given the pontiff's lofty and usually revered status in the Roman world. And Constance was very firm on dissidence, and as he'd grown up, he refused to abandon his grandfather's monothaletism. The complaints of Chalcedonians had not died down, but the emperor stuck to the unpopular doctrine. In 661, two other men suffered his wrath. One was Maximus the Confessor, a highly respected theologian who was an outspoken critic of monothaletism. He also happened to be resident in Carthage and was blamed by the emperor for encouraging Gregory's rebellion. Maximus had his tongue and hand amputated. Meanwhile, Constance forced his own brother Theodosius into the priesthood, presumably to end any claims he might have on the throne, and then in 661 had him murdered. Our lack of sources leave us questioning the emperor's motives. He's about to leave Constantinople and spend years in the West, so the obvious conclusion would be that he didn't want his brother seizing control of the government while he was gone. We have no idea if Theodosius had actually made any seditious moves, The histories report that the emperor was hated by the people of Constantinople for these impious acts, but we have no way of knowing how unpopular he was, or whether that unpopularity had any bearing whatsoever on his decision to leave. So, in spring 662, Constance took a large contingent of the Obsikion army and sailed for Thessalonica. From there, he marched overland to Athens and then Corinth. There, he collected regiments of the Carabisian theme, and in 663, he sailed to Tarentum in Italy. The emperor had left his wife and children behind in Constantinople. Constantine IV was officially in charge of the capital, though doubtless his advisers had plenty to do. Once the army had disembarked at Tarentum, Constance began to drive off the local Lombard garrisons. It seems that the emperor hoped to push the Germans from the south of the country, thus giving himself a more secure Italian base from which to begin his work in the west. The small towns en route surrendered until the emperor reached Beneventum, the capital of the local Lombard duke. 
Beneventum is right in the middle of the Italian peninsula, on the same horizontal line as Naples. The city put up strong resistance to the Byzantine siege, while messengers raced north to tell King Grimald. When news reached Constance that the main Lombard army was making its way south, he broke off the siege. The emperor headed to Naples and left the bulk of his army with a subordinate who was then defeated by the Lombard king. The Byzantines retreated in good order, but Constance's plans for Italy had to be shelved. Nevertheless, the emperor marched north to Rome, where the new pope Vitalian greeted him cordially. Well, you would, wouldn't you, after your predecessor was hauled off in chains. Constance was the first Roman emperor to set foot in the Eternal City since the fall of the West, and he visited all the great churches and was very polite to everyone he met. But in the meantime, his soldiers carted off any precious metal they could find, and even apparently stripped the bronze tiles from the roof of the Pantheon. After twelve days, the army left Rome and made their way south. From Regium they set sail for Syracuse in Sicily, where Constance was to set up his home for the next five years. So what was he up to? Why had the emperor left Constantinople for Syracuse? The sources claim that he was planning to move the capital of the whole empire to Sicily, that like his grandfather had threatened to, he was going to move west, away from the concerns of the east, to entrench the empire nearer to its Roman roots. Whether that was his long-term plan, we don't know. In the short term, Constance was clearly trying to more directly control the administration of the West to prevent its fall into Arab hands. With Egypt gone, his two best sources of grain were now Sicily and Africa. Clearly the revolts of the previous decade had concerned him, and he felt his own presence was needed to stop the rot. By basing himself in Sicily, he could provide naval support to defend Africa, while also keeping his own field army paid and fed. The emperor began to levy taxes rigorously, not only in Sicily and southern Italy, but also in Sardinia and Africa. He also began to confiscate church plate to help pay for his army and administration. Back in the east, Muawiyah emerged victorious from the civil war and became the new caliph. This was bad news for Byzantium. Muawiyah made Damascus the new capital of the caliphate and renewed his assaults on Romania with vigour. By 662, the Armenians had returned to their former masters, and in 663 and 64, Arab armies probed into Anatolia, although the themes dealt with this adequately. By 665, though, events began to move quicker. Constance clashed with Gennadius, the exarch of Carthage, who then fled to Muawiyah when his own men overthrew him. Gennadius asked the caliph for an army to restore him to Africa, and Muawiyah duly obliged. Gennadius died en route, but the army kept coming. Constance sent men to reinforce the army of Africa under the command of Nicephorus, but he was defeated by the advancing Arabs. The Muslim force plundered the southern part of the Exarchate and occupied parts of Tripolitania. This was a dangerous situation because it meant the Arabs had a permanent base on the African side of the Libyan desert. Meanwhile, in Anatolia, Muawiyah put tremendous pressure 
on the Armeniacon theme. Every summer between 665 and 668, the Syrian army would attack the borderlands and then spend the winter in Byzantine territory in an occupied town. After three years of utter frustration, the general of the theme, Saborius, snapped. With no support coming from Constantinople and the emperor away in Sicily, Saborius rebelled, declared himself emperor, and sent word to Muawiyah seeking his support. The caliph agreed, in exchange for a hefty tribute, once the new man was on the throne. I should point out that the theme generals were known as strategos, from the Greek word for general. Constance sent Nicephorus and some of his men back to Constantinople, and they led out an army to meet the rebel general. And fortunately for the emperor, Saborius died when he fell from his horse en route. The Armeniacon army had supported him, but clearly many of them had just been following orders as they immediately resubmitted themselves to the authority of the emperor. The revolt of Saborius reminds us of why the emperors had rarely left the capital in the last few centuries. And it was not only Constance's absence that was causing problems. His lack of military victories on any front was damaging to his legitimacy and the defeats in Africa in particular seemed to discredit his decision to locate himself in the West. Chalcedonians everywhere were still angry about monothletism, and the Sicilians in particular were fed up with the imposition of heavier taxes than they were used to by their new guest. Even some of the Obsikion soldiers began to complain about having spent so long away from their homes near Constantinople. Which particular cocktail of disapproval turned out to be the right blend, we'll never know. But in the summer of 668, Constance was visiting the baths when one of his chamberlains smashed him over the head with a soap dish and killed him. He was 37 years old and had done a far better job of running the empire than might have been expected for 27 years. The Count of the Obsikion army, Mizizius, was proclaimed emperor soon after, but it's not clear that he was the mastermind behind the plot. Many of his own men refused to recognize him, and the Strategos of the Karabisians took his men and sailed home to avoid being associated with the coup. Loyal troops soon overthrew Mizizius, and Constantine IV was acclaimed emperor back in Constantinople. Whatever discontent there was with Constance, it clearly wasn't widespread enough to overthrow the Heraclean dynasty. I think the opinion of the histories is clouded by the fact that Constance was murdered in Sicily. It makes his five-year stay there seem like he never intended to return to the capital. But at 37, he may well have thought time was on his side that he could strengthen the West before returning home. However, if that was his plan, it largely failed. Sadly, almost every proactive military decision that Constance took was unsuccessful, but there may have been very little he could do about that. In terms of reactive, defensive decisions, he was far more successful. He held the door to Armenia open and helped keep Carthage out of Arab hands for now, and his creation of, or approval of the plan for the themes, would secure the empire's future. 
In a way, Constance continued his grandfather's work by using the Taurus Mountains as the Empire's new first line of defence. Behind them, he deployed the Empire's military strength to ensure that the Arabs would find the path to Constantinople as well-guarded as possible. As for his trip westward, obviously it failed in that it cost him his life. But was there merit in the plan? He was definitely right to see danger in the loss of the West, even if none of the moves he made to defend it had much effect. Perhaps if he'd lived, he would have found a better solution, but it seems unlikely, given the continuing advance of Arab armies. Byzantine commanders were still reluctant to lose all the men they had by making a last stand, and the self-confidence and skill of the Arab cavalry continued to carry the day. Initially, when I'd read that the emperor had left his wife and children behind and established a new capital, well, I thought perhaps Constance was making up for those lost teenage years. But the sources say nothing of the sort. Even though they accuse Constance of being cruel and inflexible, they also call him devout and loyal to his family. In fact, it's claimed that he tried to send for them to come and join him, but the court in Constantinople would not countenance it. And they were probably right, because with the imperial family gone, a coup would surely not have been far behind. Constance, therefore, passes from the stage as a decent emperor. I think there's something moving about him being handed the reins of government at 11 and giving his entire adult life to the service of Romania. With a bit of luck and a lot of hard work, he helped mould the Roman state into one that could survive an unprecedented series of military disasters. Next time, we'll see if his son Constantine IV can continue the family's work. Thank you so much for listening. I thought you might want to know that I've updated the bibliography at thehistoryofbyzantium.com. You can find the link in the top right-hand corner of the homepage. I've also changed my Twitter handle to at ByzantiumCast if you're looking for me there. I also want to say a big thank you to those who have recently bought episode 28 and those who've just sent donations. It really means a lot to me and it's always slightly frustrating not to be able to thank you all individually. I hope this will do for now and that me getting the episodes out as quick as I can is my silent thank you. Thanks to all of you, the History of Byzantium podcast now has strong walls guarding it from the enemies that threaten its survival. But what good are walls without defenders on them? It's no good relying on the Scolaris anymore. Do you remember the Scolaris? They were the old palace regiments that slowly over time became merely an honorific title that senators liked to collect for themselves and didn't expect to do any military service. Apparently, one of Justinian's more amusing ways of raising cash was to announce that a regiment of the Scolares were to be shipped out to Dara to fight the Persians. Well, you're imperial soldiers, aren't you? And then the terrified senators would be forced to pay bribes to get out of the service. No, no, they simply won't do any more. We need well-trained professional recruits. And you know what really keeps their morale up when they're up on the walls? iTunes reviews. Yes, your encouraging words and star ratings will keep them alert as they scan the horizon 
for danger. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.